0: Connect with us at mvfcolorado.com. Now, stay tuned for this week's message. We are in the second week of a series called Marked, and uh, it comes out of the book of Mark. And so we're going to be marching through chapter by chapter all through the summer. And uh, our prayer and hope is that as we go through this, That our faith would be strengthened that we would become uh, just just even more firm in our faith that Jesus Christ is who he says he is and and we'll get to that here in just a minute but if you do the math you know this is the second week and so I'm gonna send you to chapter 2 so if you would grab your Bibles head over to mark chapter 2 we're gonna spend all day in this chapter and I want to remind you before I get going this morning of this ask anything at the bottom of the screen If you have any questions during this message... Uh, you know what if it comes to you in one of the, the verses or something I say or, or something comes to mind and you just have a question you can text your question to that phone number it comes in anonymously and then if we have some questions at the end of the service we 'll get the pastors up here to answer those questions before you head out and it 's our way of just saying look we need to be answering your questions and if you're um, you know we 're not answering your questions we 're not doing our job and so we want to do that today so keep that in mind as we go you don't need to memorize the number it'll be up there for the whole message today uh, one of the words that I find fascinating fascinating in the English language is the word need. You hear it a lot, especially in our society today. Everyone needs something. We need this. We need that. We need that to happen. And, and we use it all the time. If we were to sit down and make a list today of all the things that we say that we would need... I think it would be interesting. I think it would probably be a pretty lengthy list. But then if we stopped and went back and really asked the question, do I really need all of these things? I think we would have to admit that a lot of those things aren't really needs. And the reason for that is because the word need, I think, is is one of the most haphazard words in the English language because it could mean anything, right? Uh, Those of you that are parents that take your kids shoe shopping, you know that to be true, right? Because you never hear your kids say, Father, I would really desire this pair of shoes, right? Uh, Mom, if you would purchase these pair, I would really appreciate it. They don't say that, do they? They say, I need these shoes. Like, I gotta have them, or otherwise, life is gonna end today if you don't buy these shoes, because I need them. And what's interesting is we use that word, we throw it around a lot when it comes to life, but we also throw it around a lot when it comes to our faith, our walk with Christ, Uh, When it comes to our our, our, you know expression of faith and everything else, and and I think this is one of the reasons why we spend time in prayer and why we come in and we, we open up during worship sometimes because we declare before God many times that we need this or that. God, if you would just move. God, if you if you would just provide, because I need we use it a lot. And yet, when it comes to need, I think the gospel is actually counterintuitive. I think the gospel is countercultural because it confronts our sense of need, what we really, really need. And sometimes, if we really took a look at what we said that we need and put it in light of the gospel, we'd find out very quickly that we don't really need those things at all. Now, if you weren't here last week, we kicked the series off. We, we talked about the foundation, kind of a lot of the context and the background of the book of Mark, who wrote it, why it was written, things like that. If you weren't here last week, I want to encourage you to go back and listen to that, because we set a lot of foundational work for this entire series, and so go back and listen to that. But let me just uh, share with you, if you weren't here, we told you that the entire book kicks off Mark chapter 1, verse 1, it tells you right away what this book is going to be about. It says this, this is the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. I love uh, John Mark as an author because he just tells you straight up what he's doing. He doesn't hide it. He doesn't, he doesn't kind of like shield it. He just comes out and says, this is why I'm writing this book, so that you might know that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. If for any reason through this entire series, or as you're reading through the book of Mark, you go, why is that in here? Or why did he write this down? All you have to do is go back to chapter 1, verse 1, and you'll realize the reason he did it was so that you might know that Jesus is the Messiah the son of god. And then last week we found out right after he makes the statement, he just launches, I mean, he just dives off into the life of Christ. He doesn't he doesn't lollygag around, he just goes right at it and he starts spelling out the the ministry of Christ, the fact that he was here preaching about the good news of the kingdom of god, that he was demonstrating who he was. By healing people, casting out demons. He does a lot of of miracles, and they're not called miracles when you get to the book of John. John actually calls them signs, which I like better because that's exactly why he does these things. It's a sign to demonstrate who he is. And you're going to see a lot of that in chapter 2. And we're going to handle. Chapter 2, a little bit differently than we did chapter 1, what I want to do today, and I know this isn't always recommended for public speaking, but it's the Word of God, it speaks for itself, we're just going to read the whole chapter, we're just going to read right through it, and I want you to notice a couple things. First of all, there's several movements to this. Um, you're going to see the first part of this is going to be Jesus going back to Capernaum. He gets to teach, and there's so many people there that these guys bring a paralyzed guy uh, to see Jesus. They can't get to Jesus. So they just cut a hole in the roof and they drop him down in front of Jesus. And Jesus does something completely different based on his real need. Um, We're also going to see him walking along the shore and he's going to see Levi in his tax booth who he would later change his name to Matthew and he'll become one of the disciples of Jesus. But he'll call him to follow him and then Jesus will go to his house to eat and he's eaten with a whole lot of sinners and he'll get judged for that. And then you're going to see him approached by some of the other disciples from John and from the Pharisees and they're going to say, why aren't you fasting like we fast? And his response is very interesting because he uses some parables to answer that. And then at the very end, the fourth movement is on a Sabbath. They're walking through a grain field and the disciples are picking some heads of grain and eating it. And then he gets accused of breaking the Sabbath. And so those are the four movements as we walk through this. And I want us to read it and then we're going to dive into each of these stories and try to draw out what it means for us here and now. And so let's take a look at this. Mark chapter 2, it starts off this way. When Jesus returned to Caternum, Several days later, the news spread quickly that he was back home. Soon the house where he was staying was so packed with visitors that there was no more room, even outside the door. While he was preaching God's word to them, four men arrived carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. They couldn't bring him to Jesus because of the crowd. So they dug a hole through the roof above his head. Then they lowered the man on his mat right down in front of Jesus. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, My child, your sins are forgiven. But some of the teachers of religious law who were sitting there thought to themselves, What what is he saying? This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus knew immediately what they were thinking. So he asked them, Why do you question this in your hearts? Is it easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or stand up, pick up your mat, and walk? So I will prove to you that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. And the man very slowly and labored. No, nobody's going to call me on that, huh? No, isn't this amazing? Like just a second ago, he's paralyzed. And it says in verse 12, the man jumped up, grabbed his mat and walked out um, through the stunned onlookers. They were all amazed and praised God, exclaiming, we've never seen anything like this before. Movement number two. Then Jesus went out to the lake shore again and taught the crowds that were coming to him. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Levi got up and followed him. Later, Levi invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. There were, uh, there were many people of this kind among Jesus' followers. I just love that that tagline right there it just says there are a lot of people like this that were far from God that, that were sinners that were a part of of Jesus followers I love that and the question is as a church are we that way and if not why not but when the teachers of religious law who were the pharisees saw him eating with tax collectors and other sinners they asked his disciples why does he eat with such scum when Jesus heard this He told them healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. I have come not to to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. Next one. Once, when John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, some people came to Jesus and asked, why don't your disciples fast like John's disciples and the Pharisees do? Jesus replied, do wedding guests fast while celebrating with the groom? Of course not. They can't fast while the groom is with them, but someday the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. Besides, who would patch old clothing with new cloth? For the new patch would shrink and rip away from the old cloth, leaving an even bigger tear than before. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, for the wine would burst the wineskins, and the wine and the skins would both be lost. New wine calls for new wineskins. And then the last movement. One Sabbath day, as Jesus was walking through some grain fields, his disciples began breaking off heads of grain to eat. But the Pharisees said to Jesus, look, why are they breaking the law by harvesting grain on the Sabbath? Jesus said to them, haven't you ever read in the scriptures what David did when he and his companions were hungry? They went into the house of God during the days when Abathar was high priest and broke the law by by eating the sacred loaves of bread that only the priests are allowed to eat. He also gave some to his companions. Then Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made to meet the needs of, of people, and not people to meet the requirements of the Sabbath. And he ends this way, so the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. I love chapter two. It's got so much to it. And and as we said last week, Mark literally is the gospel of Jesus on steroids. Like Mark doesn't even take a breath as he's telling this story. He's just rushing through the story in chronological order. And the first story they tells us is about Jesus in the house in Capernaum. And these four guys show up and they bring this paralyzed guy with them. And he must have been a good friend of theirs, because they they spent a lot of time and a lot of work to get this guy to Jesus, and they bring him, they can't get close to Jesus, they can't get in the house, and so you got to give him an A for problem solving, right? Because they take the guy up onto the roof, they tear open the roof, and I just imagine Jesus, you know, standing there with all these people listening, he's teaching about God, and all of a sudden pieces of the roof start falling in, right? Like, what in the world's going on? And then pretty soon, there's these guys like, hey, what's up? And then they like lower this paralyzed guy down to him. I mean, just an amazing scene to me. Why would they do that? Because they had faith. They had faith that Jesus could do something about the condition of their friend. And I don't know, maybe maybe they saw the other miracles. Maybe they were there and they saw it with their own eyes or maybe they just heard Jesus' teachings and they went back to their paralyzed friend and said, dude, we found somebody that could help. Or maybe... Uh, somebody had told them about what Jesus was doing and said, "You got to go meet this guy because he can do something about it." But whatever it was, they had faith that Jesus could change the situation. He they he could fix what was wrong with their friend, and so they bring him. To Jesus and they do all this work to make sure that they can get their friend in front of Jesus and I wonder if the author of Hebrews was thinking about these four men when he wrote in chapter 11 verse 6 and it is impossible to please God without faith anyone who wants to come to him must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who sincerely seek him they were sincerely seeking Jesus to make sure that they got their friend in front of Jesus. Last month, we had the opportunity to go to the Holy Land, and we toured Israel, and we took 27 people from Mountain View Fellowship. And if you've never been, we would love to have you go. We'll have another trip next year. But uh, it was interesting, the group of people that we took from the church, because it was an eclectic group. It, people with different backgrounds, different occupations, and, and it was a great group of just uh, of just all kinds. Um, unified in our belief, our faith in Jesus Christ, going as pilgrims to walk where Jesus walked and doing it together was absolutely amazing. But one of the families that went with us was a uh, Dave, uh, I'm sorry, Mark and Carrie Kymig. And if you don't know them, you need to get to know them. Usually they're in the first service. They were here this morning down here in the front. And David, their son, is the one in the wheelchair that you see many, many, uh, many times. And he usually has a cowboy hat on and a Sunday go to meet and tie. You know, it's pretty awesome. And uh, he has a, a muscular disease. He's, since high school, he's been losing more and more control of his muscles. And it's putting him in a wheelchair. And uh, even though he has uh, issues with all of his, his muscular structure... His brain is just as sharp as day one. He's sharper than most of us, and he knows the scriptures forward and backward. And when they came to me and they said, hey, we really, really want to go to Israel with you, and we want to take David, Uh, I'll be honest, I was a little nervous because a lot of the roads and the the pathways, walkways and stuff that were laid 2,000 years ago are not wheelchair-friendly. And I just knew this was going to be a massive undertaking to get him there and to be able to get him into all these places. And I was really worried that that we were going to struggle with this, that we were going to have trouble getting him in some of the places, that a lot of the places that we went and saw that he would not be able to attend and do with us. And what was fascinating is I was so proud of our team because a lot of our men on our team, they would see Mark pushing his son David, and and as soon as they would get close to a staircase going up, or going down, or going over curb, or just some rocky areas that we just couldn't push a wheelchair through very, very well, guys would just jump up. Like, you had to be on top of the ball, because they would beat you to it, and they would just go, and they would grab the four corners of the chair, and they would just carry him. And they carried him everywhere. I mean, we carried him upstairs, downstairs. We took him up to the top of Herodian's fortress, which man, that is a massive, massive place anyway. And to get him all the way to the top they carried him and they just kept switching corners so they could rest their arms as they went it was just incredible to watch a group of of people just take care of each other like that he ended up doing everything Like he got in the Dead Sea and and his dad, I found it, is a beast. Like this guy, every time we couldn't take the wheelchair somewhere, uh, he would just put his son on his back and he would just carry him and he just carried him into the Jordan River because David, one of his wishes was he wanted to be baptized in the Jordan River. And so uh, they got him down to the Jordan River and we had the honor of being able to baptize him there. Uh, He got in the Dead Sea. Uh, he, He went almost every single place that we went, there wasn't hardly a single place he couldn't go We were able to get him just about everywhere because everybody just jumped in and took care of him. And it was absolutely an incredible trip. The last part of the trip, we end the trip uh, in the garden tomb. And as we we gathered, after we got into the garden tomb and came out, we had a worship time together. We broke bread and took juice. We did communion right there. And then I gathered them all up to take a picture. And uh, after this picture... David looked at me and he says hey can I just say something to the team and I'm like sure yeah of course and and he says I just want to thank everybody And I was like all right cool so I'm standing there and he turns around he faces everybody he says hey I just want to tell everybody here um, when I first um, started talking about coming on this trip I was worried I didn't know if I'd be able to do any of this stuff like I, I really really wanted to see the places where Jesus went and even though I'm in a wheelchair I wanted to walk where Jesus walked And I wanted to be able to do all these things. And he starts talking about this. And uh, he gets to this this point in in his thank you where he says, this reminded me of the story in Scripture where the four men picked their friend up on a mat. And they carry him in to make sure that he gets to Jesus. And about this time, I'm getting choked up. and I'm like, dude, don't cry. Don't cry. And I'm like, oh. So I just turn away from him because I'm like, I'm not going to look at him anymore. And I look at everybody and everybody's just like bawling tears everywhere. And I'm like, doggone it, you know. And so it was just this, this time of just sharing with each other. Now, here's why I bring this up. Because David, we think we know what his need is, Right? But see, here's what's interesting. He can answer this question, and I want to know if you can answer this question. Do you have friends who will carry you to Jesus? Do you have friends that will carry you to Jesus? Some of you are invited here. Like maybe you just started coming since Easter because of a, a neighbor or a coworker or a classmate. Somebody invited you. I want to tell you, that is a better friend than your drinking buddy. It's a better friend than that, that girlfriend that you have that you go shopping with. Do you know why? Because they care about your deepest need above everything else. We look at this story and these four guys carry this paralyzed guy and they drop him down. They do everything to get him in front of Jesus and we think we know how the story is going to go. Like if you were in Jesus' sandals, what would you have said and what would you have done? What would you have thought was his greatest need? We probably would have held him on the spot but that's not what Jesus does. Do you know what his greatest need was? Jesus says it. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, my child, your sins are forgiven. And we're like, sins are forgiven? He's paralyzed. And it's seeing their faith, not his. Like these guys had enough faith to say, we got to get him in front of Jesus. Jesus can do something about this. Let's get him there. And they drop him down. And seeing their faith, Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. See, faith is not built on blind trust. It's not hoping Faith is built on truth. They saw Jesus. They knew he was who he said he was. It's built on Jesus. It's built on the word of God. It's built on truth. When you have that type of faith, it changes everything. I love the portions of scripture where Jesus, it says in the text, he was amazed at their faith. Do you realize it's the only thing he's ever amazed at? Is someone's faith? Seeing their faith. He forgives this guy's sins. Why? Because what was his greatest need? To be forgiven. Do you know why? David knows this. I hope you know this. Because I think a lot of us in this room, we'd say, man, I'm dealing with this. I'm dealing with that. You know, I got this this arthritis issue. I'm dealing with MS. This is my lot in life. I I struggle with my mind. I, I suffer from depression all the time. And we think those are the greatest problems that we have in life when in reality our biggest problem is that we need a deeper healing. We need forgiveness of our sins. We need a savior. We need grace is what we need. Why? Because this body, as messed up as it is, I get to trade it in for a new one. Right on? I got this, this thing I'm glad to get rid of. Growing old sucks. Right? but the good news is I'm one step closer to heaven and someday I'm gonna get a perfected body and I can let this one go. And I'm excited about that. It has nothing to do with how good I feel when I get out of bed. It has everything to do with, is my heart right with God? Do I have faith in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior? And it's easy for us to get in this mindset where we think our greatest problem is outside of ourselves instead of inside. And that is a horrible deceit. Because our greatest need is for a savior, for grace, for Jesus Christ himself. The deepest need of every person is grace, that forgiving, that empowering, that delivering grace that we can only find through Jesus Christ. That's it. And here's what's amazing. When you experience that grace, when you come face to face with Jesus Christ, you are no longer a casual consumer of church. Like you come in here, you become a student of the word. You're excited about getting to know Jesus, this one that saved you. When you come face-to-face with Jesus and you experience His grace, um, worship changes. You become a lover of fellowship. You love to gather with His people. You love to worship and proclaim who He is. That's what you were doing this morning. You can't do that if you don't believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and understand who you are in light of that. And and if we lack God's grace, then we become no different than the Pharisees. We become judgmental. Look at what they said in verse 7. What is he saying? This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Some of your translations say, by whose authority does he think he's forgiving sins, right? They're questioning Jesus. And, I, and they were right about two things. That all sin is against God and that only God could forgive. They got that right. But Jesus' response back to them in, in 8... Is why do you question this in your what? Don't miss this. Because sometimes we think faith is about head knowledge, and it's not. It's about our heart, resolving our heart who Jesus is. And through this series, Mark wants you to know that he's the Messiah, he's the Son of God. That's his desire. But you have to get it into your heart, and I'm not talking about that fleshy thing that beats and pumps uh, pumps blood through your system. I'm talking about this this heart, this core of who you are. That word comes up over 900 times in Scripture, and it's talking about the seat of your thoughts, of your desires, of your motives, of your emotions. God needs to be at the center of all of that. And Jesus says, "Um, why do you question this in your hearts? And he goes on to ask another question. Is it easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or stand up, pick up your mat, and walk? They don't answer him, obviously. We're not given their answer, but I'm guessing they'd sit there and go, well, it's easier to say, forgive their sins, because we don't know. That's, That's between them and God, right? Because if he says, stand up, pick up your mat, and walk, then if he doesn't do it, then obviously we know You know, he's not who he says he is. And it's interesting because Jesus says, I'm going to do this so that you know that the Son of Man has the power to forgive sins even here, right? I mean, he does it for a reason. So first of all, he forgives the paralyzed man of his sins. And then he says, get up, take your mat and walk, right? And what does the guy do? Jumps up. He's excited about this. Now he's forgiven of his sins and he's not paralyzed anymore. And why does Jesus do that? Is it because he takes pity on the man? No. See, this miracle was meant to be this physical demonstration that points to Jesus' true identity, the fact that he is the Messiah, the Son of God. And it's to increase the faith of all the people that were standing there that day. That's the only reason he does any of these miracles. Again, that's why John calls them signs, so that you might know who he is. And that's exactly what happened. Because in the second part of verse 12, we read the the effect. It says, they were all amazed and praised who? And praised who? God. God not Jesus all points to who God is I think it's incredible he leaves the scene he goes from Capernaum and he starts walking along the, the coast line of the Sea of Galilee and as he's walking along he's teaching people about God and he looks over and there's a tax booth sitting there and a guy by the name of Levi is in this tax booth and, and you guys if you've been around the church very long you know what I'm going to say his background right that, that Levi is this Hebrew guy who has sold himself out. He went to work for the Roman government. He's taxing his own people. And the fact that he has a tax booth right there on the shoreline tells you that his, he's responsible for taxing all the fishermen coming in and, and out. And the problem with that is they would tax, obviously, what Rome wanted, but they would tax even more than that, and then they would keep it for themselves. So not only was he a traitor, but he was a thief to his own people. And we all sit here and we hear that and we go, oh, we'd be friends with him. No, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. No one would. Levi's hated by the world he probably hates the world himself. And Jesus walks by and he calls him and said, I want you to follow me and I want you to be my disciple. This man who is literally the opposite of everything that Jesus is And Jesus calls on him to be his disciple. And when we read this, here's the mistake we make. We start thinking about all the Levites that we know. Because we all know them, right? I mean, we work with them, we go to school with them. Some of them are in our families, right? Right? We know people like that, that are just so resistant to Christ, they're, they're living horrible lifestyles, and, and we think about them, and, and in this weird way, we mistakenly think somehow that we're better than them. That's where we cross the line. And the truth is this, that we are all Levi. Every one of us. You're a Levi. I'm Levi. We were all in sin. We were all lost without Jesus, and, and that's the shocking thing about, about God calling us to follow him. We were all jacked up, and yet God calls us to follow him. That's the miracle of grace. See, our hope is in one thing. It's in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. That's it. Don't miss this. Without him, we have nothing. It's all about a relationship with Jesus Christ. And Jesus came for each of us. Why? Because he came for sinners. He was a friend of sinners. And it's this scandalous grace that we see in Scripture that we wrestle with because we don't know how to love like that. We don't know how to forgive like that. And yet Jesus does, and he did it for us, and we need to thank him every day. It should change the way we worship because without him we have nothing. We think, well, you know, I don't know. I'm pretty awesome. Look at all the stuff that I can do for Jesus, right? That's why he called me. And, man, when we start thinking like that, we are jacked. Because honestly, he calls us out of our sin. And the only thing that we bring to the table is our brokenness. That's all we have to offer. And yet he takes that and he does something absolutely beautiful with it. And that's the greatness of the gospel. That's the heart of the gospel. And the moment we start thinking that we're greater than somebody else or we're called because we're so awesome that Jesus just saw us and said, I got to have that dude on my team, that's when we're so far off track. I love the fact that just Levi just leaves his booth and he follows. Isn't that awesome? He doesn't have any questions. Just, hey, this guy wants me to follow. I'm going to follow Jesus. And then what does he do? What does Levi do with Jesus? He takes him home. There's a message in that for all of us, right? Like some of us, we pretend to be Christians. We call ourselves Christians. But God has nothing to do with our household. Some of us, the the takeaway today is that we need to take Christ home with us. But Levi invites him to come in and he wants to introduce him to all of his friends, and we're told in scripture that his friends are a motley crew, right? Like they're bad company. That's what it says in scripture. And yet Jesus is sitting there having a having a meal with them. And I love the fact that Jesus is pretty comfortable in the midst of all these sinners. But you know who's not? The Pharisees, because take a look at their question. Why does he eat with such scum? Some of your translations say, Why does he eat with these tax collectors and sinners? Can I, can I just point this out to you? Their question actually implies that they don't think that they're one of them. But they're not a sinner. Why is he eating with those people? Because we're righteous. We're above them. We're better than them. This is what Jesus points out in this whole story. You, you realize if Jesus didn't eat with sinners, he'd be eaten by himself. Because we're all sinners. But instead, he comes to us. And he invites us to the table. Uh, Verse 17, it says, When Jesus heard this, he told them, Healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I have come to call not those who what? Think. Notice he doesn't say, I have not come to call those who are righteous because it says in scripture, None of us are righteous. Not a single one. And this is almost like trying to get the Pharisees to understand. You're not righteous. You think you are, but you're nowhere close to being righteous. You just think you're righteous. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. Do you know why? Because when you know you're a sinner, you humble yourself. You get on your knees before the cross and you cry out to him. It's in that moment that Christ says, all right, that's the heart condition I want. That's the heart posture that accepts me as Lord, that follows me. See, Jesus sits with the despised. He sits with the rejected. He hangs out with the hopeless. Why? Because that's what he came to do. Uh, And then this next story, he sits with his disciples and and some people approach him and and they go, "Why, why don't you guys fast like John's disciples and like the Pharisees? And what you need to know is that a good Jew back in the first century, they would fast at least once a year. There was a certain time where they would all fast together. That was the only one that was required. But the religious leaders They fasted twice a week. You have to ask the question why, right? It's because they're trying to prove how righteous they are. So they can look down on everybody else that didn't. That's why their question is, why don't you fast like we do? That was the question, really. Jesus responds by saying, no one's fasting at a wedding, like when the groom is with you, you're not going to be fasting. Actually, just the opposite. That's the time to celebrate. See, Jesus was right there. The Messiah was in their midst. They were, they were doing ministry, and Jesus' ministry was a reason to celebrate, not fast. And they missed it. But then Jesus says, um, but there is a time that's coming that's going to change things. He says this in verse 20. But someday the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. This word taken away is actually this, in the original text, it's this violent removal is what it means. He's already foreshadowing what's going to happen, that they're going to come and they're going to arrest him and they're going to beat him and they're going to crucify him. And if you think about what happened to the disciples after that, they did fast, didn't they? They did mourn. And then on the tail end of this, he tells two parables. Uh, the first one has to do about old clothing being patched with new cloth and, and new wine and old wineskins. And really what he's saying in this moment is, hey, this new system or this old system, it's not going to contain what I'm going to do. Like everything you've been practicing and doing, um, I'm getting ready to go to the cross. I'm going to give my life. I'm going to come back from the grave. I'm going to establish a new covenant in my blood, and it's going to change all. All of the rules. It's going to change everything that you know to be true. And the whole parable about the clothing and the wine represents this new reality of God's kingdom that's going to come. And the way of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ is not going to be compatible with the old sacrificial system. They're not going to need to make sacrifices anymore. He will be the sacrificial lamb, He'll take care of all of that. And He's saying, none of that is going to be needed, it's all going to go away. And yet, when you take a look at the book of Acts, what are they doing? They're trying to, they're trying to squeeze Jesus into what they're already doing. No, you still got to be circumcised. No, you still have to observe these laws. No, you still have to do that. And the disciples find themselves running around all the time going, no, you missed it. Jesus changed it all. He is the focal. He's not just something you add on. He's the center. And and there's a lesson in here for our lives as well, because here we are in 2023, we have all this knowledge and wisdom, and yet what do we do? We try to live our own life, and we just try to add Jesus to it. He's just an add-on, and I would say to you, you're doing it all wrong. You're doing it all wrong. This next story... That wraps up this chapter. Jesus is walking along with his disciples and they're picking grain out of somebody else's field. And by the way, there was nothing wrong with that because Deuteronomy 23 told them they could. So they weren't breaking any of the written law. But yet they're being accused of breaking the law. And and you've got to ask the question well, which law are we talking about here? And the, the answer to that is the fact that the Torah, when you get to the Torah and you're going through, when you get to Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, we're given all the laws. And that's what they were supposed to be following. But by the time we get to the, you know, when Jesus arrives on the scene, the Pharisees had been taking all these laws and they've been trying to apply it to life. Like, what does it mean when I get, my donkey falls into a ditch? What do I do on Sabbath? You know, and they're having these discussions. And from that, they added another 613 laws. And it was so oppressive that nobody could keep all the laws. And those were not the written laws. Those were the oral laws. And I find it fascinating that later on, Jesus would actually say, look, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Referring to this, like, you're just living your life by laws, not a relationship. It's all about religion. And what I want is a relationship with you. And they're saying, look, why are you breaking the Sabbath? They're talking about one of the oral laws. And Jesus responds here in verse 27, the Sabbath was made to meet the needs of people and not people to meet the requirements of the sabbath like you missed it it was about people it was about a relationship with god and yet you've made it all about the law and what he's saying is don't make your faith about religion don't make your faith about law make it about a relationship with me here i am standing in front of you and you're missing it you're more worried about the law and i think that's why he ends this entire chapter in verse 28 by saying so the son of man is lord even over the sabbath not just everything even over this I'm the Lord of everything. Jesus is saying, look, I am the Sabbath. I am the ultimate rest. I am the ultimate shalom, the peace that you're looking for. The Sabbath was meant to point them to God. It was this idea that they set apart a day they called Sabbath or Shabbat today. They're still doing it where they're supposed to not work, not do anything, focus on God. And you know what they've turned it into? Rules. It's all about what you can't do and what you can do during that day instead of saying no it's about drawing closer to god and that's what jesus was getting to their legalism had blinded them i think that's the main point of this entire passage jesus is saying look i'm the forgiver of sins i'm the savior I'm the healer, not just of your physical body, but of your spiritual soul as well. I'm the friend of uh, of sinners. I'm the one who has come to call you to follow me. I'm the groom who will leave someday, but I am coming back and I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm the one that brings true peace if that's what you're looking for. And, And so why did Mark write all four of these stories in chapter two? So that you would grow in your faith, And know that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of God. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for um, just the fact that even 2,000 years later, we have the opportunity to sit and read through this and, and have our faith increased in you, Lord. I pray that you are doing a work in all of our hearts, that you are showing us that your word is true, that it's dependable, and that you are who you say you are. Uh, Lord, for those in the room that don't know you yet, I pray that they wouldn't leave here today without receiving you as Lord and Savior, of just committing their life to you. God, because we know um, the most important thing, our greatest need is to be forgiven of our sins, to have a Savior, because without you, we have nothing. But Lord, with you, we have nothing to fear. And so, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for today. We just ask that everything that we do and say, Just bring glory and honor to your name. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ and all God's people said, amen. Amen.